Well, we are uh, not only starting a new season in the church calendar in Lent, but we're starting a new uh, sermon series as well. We're going to do another little mini-series, and this one just focused in on one chapter in the Bible, uh, Romans chapter 8. And, and I'm going to say, uh, many folks, regular, everyday Christians like you and me, as well as scholars, would say the book of Romans might be the pinnacle of the Bible. And those same scholars would also probably say that chapter 8 of Romans would be the pinnacle of the book of Romans. So we are going to kind of parachute in, helicopter into the very top of the mountain this morning. Uh, we don't even have to climb all the way up and get there. We're going to dive into really what is some of the best stuff in the whole Bible, this chapter. And we'll be here really now through Easter. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to, to Romans, uh, to chapter 8, or it's on the screen above my head. I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses, but we're really going to focus in on the first four. So listen really attentively to those, but I'll read 1 through 11. Here's Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us and cares for us infinitely, who has given us everything, you have given us also your word that we might come and see our reflection properly in it, but that we also might see the wonderful hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, will you soften our hearts this morning? Will you open our ears that are so prone sometimes even not to listen to the best news ever? Open our ears and open our eyes that we might see your goodness this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I listened to uh, a podcast the other day, a story about pitch. Not, not pitch like tone, not pitch in music, and not pitch even like the steep kind of pitch of a roof or a mountain, but pitch the element. So pitch is actually uh, what looks like a rock. 
In fact, if you held it, it would feel like a rock, and if you hit it with a hammer, it would actually shatter like a rock. It just seems like a hard rock. But it's actually a, uh, a viscoelastic polymer. I just learned that phrase. So it's not actually hard. It's more like a liquid. It functions kind of like a liquid. So pitch actually will drip like a liquid. It's just that it'll do it really, really, really slowly. In fact, uh, scientists have set up this experiment called a pitch drop where they set up a piece of pitch and they kind of put it in this particular funnel and they wait for it to, to finally kind of move so that it drips a drop like water. This experiment was started in 1930. Since 1930, this pitch has dripped eight times, okay? So it's real slow. And it wasn't until 2013 that someone actually saw it drip. Can you imagine that? Setting up an experiment that will take the entirety of your life and almost never getting to watch the payoff. There's these great stories of, you know, it's, it's getting so close and he waits and he waits and he waits and finally decides, shoot, I've got to go home and comes back the next day and it's done. Or waits and waits and waits and then realizes I'm going to get a cup of tea and comes back and it's done. Or waits and waits and waits and sets up a camera to, to try and capture it so that he can leave and the camera breaks. Literally, this is what happened until 2013 when they decided to set up like five cameras just so that they would make sure that it happened. Can you imagine pinning all of your hopes on something that happened in a millisecond and took nine years to do it? Talk about low level of assurance. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we can view our spiritual lives the same way. We can view our relationship with God the same way. That, you know, maybe if I could just kind of catch a glimpse of it, maybe God would smile on me. Maybe I would get some little bit of God saying, hey, it's going to be okay, but I got to be there. And if I miss out on it, then I've missed out on it forever. Let me just kind of ask us this question. What do we think God really thinks about us? What do we think God thinks about us? What, how do we think God responds to us, especially when we mess up? Where do we stand with the Lord. Friends, we are at the summit again. And up here at the summit, at the pinnacle of the proclamation of the Bible, what we hear is some of the best news in the world. And it's this, is that if you belong to Jesus, there is full and complete assurance of what God thinks of you. And what he thinks of you is that he thinks a lot of you. He is madly in love with you. It's crazy to even think about that. But God loves us in the most secure and assured way possible. When we belong to Jesus, what Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 8 is that there is no condemnation for us. If you don't get anything else from the rest of this time today, if you check out right now, get this. If you belong to Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. What God thinks about you when he looks at you is he thinks you are the most wonderful thing in the world. He is drawn to you. He cares about you. He values you.
So why is it that we so oftentimes don't live like this? So oftentimes we live kind of like we're that scientist waiting for that pitch drop, and maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. Maybe we're, we're not totally assured that we're going to actually kind of get it. Why is it that the best news that we could ever hope for, the greatest proclamation ever, the thing that we want so deeply to know and to hear and to believe, doesn't always impact our lives the way it should? Why do we live so oftentimes like we're under condemnation, like we're living under a death sentence, like we're living, you know, in some way insecurely on death row, just waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for God to actually do what we always knew he was going to do, and that's condemn us. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about that question. What are the things that kind of get in the way of us living that way, living like we are not under condemnation? And then we're going to go back and we're going to remember the gospel. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you're not even really sure what Christianity is all about. Or you've got questions, you've got doubts, or you're here exploring, or you're not even sure what Christians believe. What I'm going to talk about this morning is what Christians call the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. So listen attentively as we talk about that, because this is the best news you've ever heard. So let's first talk about what gets in the way. What are the reasons why we don't live like we are freed? Why do we live like we're under condemnation? Well, there's plenty of answers to that, but I want to highlight just a few of them this morning. And the first is uh, yabudism. That's a word I just made up. Yabudism. We live like we are under condemnation because of yabudism. You know what this is, right? Yeah, but I understand that, right? It's great and all. You know, I know the Bible says it. I know we talk about it in church. I know I sing about it. Yeah, but you just haven't really seen who I am. You don't really know what I do or what I've done. Yeah, but, you know, I haven't yet broken out of that habit of self-medicating with alcohol or with substances or with food or with television or with work. Yeah, but, you know, every time I try to dedicate myself to getting up and reading my Bible, you know, right about the middle of February, my will runs out and I finally just bail out and it always happens every year and I don't know what to do with myself and I just can't do it. Or yeah, but growing up, my parents told me I wasn't really worth anything. Or maybe I was worth something if I achieved in academics or in sports. And I don't always achieve, so not really sure what I'm worth. Or yeah, but all of my feelings of self-worth and value are based on the way that I look or, or what I weigh or what people say about me. Or yeah, but I lost my virginity when I was 16. Or yeah, but I failed out of college. Or yeah, but my marriage fell apart. Or yeah, but you haven't heard the way that I talk to my children oftentimes. Or yeah, but my wife actually thinks that I'm some sort of tyrant and holding it over her because the way that I actually make her feel is small and weak and helpless. We can yeah, but our ways into believing something that's completely untrue, something totally different than what God's word says to us. I watched this show uh, you know, a few years ago it was one of those like real life stories from the ER. Have you seen those where they kind of reenact actual stories that came out of an ER? And there's this one where a guy he goes into the ER and he says, you know, I've just been having these headaches 
and I don't know what to do with them, but they're getting worse. You know, it feels like I'm healthy otherwise, but I'm get, getting bad headaches. And so they, they do a bunch of tests on him. They try and figure it out. They can't figure out what's going on with him. And finally, you know, at the end of the day, they said, well, I guess we could just do, let's just do an x-ray. Just see if there's an x-ray of his head that comes up with anything. So they do an x-ray, and as the doctor comes in to kind of deliver the x-ray, he says to the man, um, so are you, are you in construction? Like, do you, do you work around construction a lot? And he says, uh, I mean, I used to, like 20 years ago. You know, I was on a framing crew. And the doctor says, okay, uh, any accidents, you know? And he says, not really. I mean, I remember this one time where a nail gun went off, and, you know, I blacked out for a little bit, and then I woke up, and my eye was kind of itchy. Why? And he takes out the x-ray, and there in this cross-section of this guy's head, there's a nail floating in the middle of his head. And turns out this guy had a, a nail gun had gone off and it had shot him through the eye and it <laughs> didn't injure his eye and it got stuck in between the lobes of his brain and just kind of hung out there for 20 years. And the doctor was like, I got good news and bad news. I mean, good news is you're alive. <laughs> bad news is there's going to be a nail in your head for a long time because we're not going to be able to take it out. Isn't that the way I think sometimes that we approach, though, these kind of passages? There's this thing, right? I'm kind of okay. I can live, I can function, but there's always this thing. It's always kind of stuck inside that this x-ray reveals that's always with me, and I carry it with me for the rest of my life. It's my shame. It's my guilt. It's my yeah, but. If that's you, listen again to what the Apostle Paul says. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, there's no yeah, but. There's no condemnation. Let's go to a second thing. Not only yeah, butism, but how about perfectionism? Perfectionism basically says, I've got to have my life all together in the perfect way in order to be accepted by either God or by the people around me. And so we present ourselves as perfect, the perfect Christian, the perfect family, the perfect past, the perfect worker, whatever it is. And perfectionism, this kind of standard that we have that everything's got to be perfect and I cannot present myself to anybody if I don't present myself as perfect, always leads to two things. It leads to either lying or hiding. My son Hampton told me that on campus the other day, uh, this street preacher came. And he came, and most of what he did was condemning everybody around. And his message really was this. His message was, I've become a Christian, and that means I don't sin anymore. Hampton actually, to his credit, went up and talked to him afterwards and said, okay, so you're telling me you will never sin. Now that you're a Christian, you will never sin again. And the guy said, yeah, that's right, I don't sin. How'd you like to be married to that guy? Probably not the most fun. Of course, he's wrong. And of course, he simply made up a lie to tell himself and to tell others so that he can hide this idea that he's broken. That's perfectionism that actually ends up leading us to lying to ourselves and to everybody else around us. Or it can lead us to hiding. Because if we're a perfectionist, we don't want to really engage honestly with the people around us. We never want to open ourselves up to who we are. We never want to actually show people the reality of who we are because what if they realize we're not perfect? And so, you know, 
We open up our phones and we see on Instagram that our friend has cooked the perfect meal for her family and the house looks perfect and the children are perfectly obedient in this picture that's already been doctored, of course, and everything in her life is perfect and everything in my life is a total mess. So why would I ever actually wanna talk to somebody else when I'm a mess? So what do I do? I hide. I hide who I am and I project something that's not real. And those two things, lying and hiding, they will always actually lead to the same thing, which is hating God and hating yourself. Because the projection of who we are and the reality of who we are, once they spread so far apart, it's going to pop, it's going to break, and it's going to fall apart. And we will hate God, and we'll hate ourselves, and we will hate others. Perfectionism keeps us from living into the beauty of the gospel. How about this third one? Uh, Self-talkism. Self-talkism. You know what that is? That's the belief that God thinks about me the same way that I think about me. This is much more prevalent, I think, than we believe. You know, I've heard it said, nobody talks to you more than you talk to you. So you need to make sure you're careful with what you say. But how, how, do, how do we normally talk about ourselves? I'm such a failure. I'm such an idiot. I'll never get that right. My marriage will never be any better. I, I'm, I'm not qualified to be a parent. I can't do this. I'm a failure, and I always will be. And so we continue to repeat those things to ourselves such that we believe it, and not only do we believe it, but we believe in some twisted way that that's what God thinks as well. So that at the end of the day, when God looks at us and we ask that question, what does my heavenly father really think of me? We think that he thinks the same things that we think about ourselves. And so we fall into this pattern of living like we're on death row, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for that chance that we might get a glimpse of God's love and compassion on us, but probably at the end of the day, we'll miss it. You know the African Impala can jump 10 feet high, like from a standstill, can jump 10 feet high and like 30 feet long. Unreal jumping ability. But you can actually, uh, you can actually keep an Impala captive with a, with a three-foot wall because the Impala won't jump where it can't see where it's going to land. And if it doesn't see where it's going to land, it won't jump over this wall that it probably could just step over. I could jump over my head and probably two of us combined, but it won't jump over this tiny wall because it thinks it's held captive even though it's not. That's the way that we oftentimes live our lives. The truth that God proclaims to us here in Romans 8 is that we are free, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we live our lives because of our perfectionism, because of our yabudism, because of our self-talkism, as if we were captive as if we were on death row, as if we were just kind of awaiting the sentence. So what's the cure? Well, this is where we get to go back and retell ourselves the wonderful truth of the story of the gospel. We actually find all of this packed in to two verses. It's really amazing. Let me read these two verses again for you. This is verse three and four. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's just pick that apart and spend the rest of our time talking about this. Paul says that Jesus did what the law could not do. What does he mean by that? We need to be very careful about the way that we're understanding how Paul talks about the law. In fact, actually just a verse before, he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's a bold statement for Paul to call God's holy and righteous law the law of sin and death. What's he talking about there? Well, he's not talking about a defect in God's law. He's talking about a defect in our ability to actually achieve God's law. And so what happens is that when we come in contact with God's holy and righteous and perfect law, what we see is not a defect defect in it, but we see our inability to live up to it. It actually shows us who we are. God's law is a mirror to our soul, and it is not a flattering mirror because it shows us our inability to actually meet that standard. And so what Paul starts with saying is that there is a law and it shows you exactly who God is in his holiness. There is a law that shows you exactly who you are made to be. And there is a law that has shown you now that you can't be that person. That is the bad news that starts the good news. But he goes on and he says, God sent his son. Boy, those are amazing words that God did not just sit idly by and say, you know what, let's just see if anybody can do it. Let's just see if maybe somebody can get close enough. And let me just kind of sit back and kind of twiddle my thumbs and see like, (laughs) there's another one. Another one bites the dust here. Nobody can achieve my perfect standard. No, God didn't do that. God in his love and his mercy sent his son He sent Jesus to become one of us. In fact, he continues by saying this, not only did he send him, but he sent him to be in the likeness of sinful man, to take on our flesh, to become a creature, to become one of us, one of those who the author of time and the image of the invisible God who actually created man in his own image, the one who wrote the book and created everything became one of his creatures so that he might put on our flesh and our sin and do what we couldn't do. That Jesus actually lived the life that we couldn't live. That he came and he said, you know what, I know that you can't and I'm going to do it for you. And so Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf to live the life that we could never live, to do what we could never do on our own. Here's the law, which is... is, uh, is weak for salvation, Jesus, strong for salvation, accomplishes it. What the law could not do, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man, and then he says this in the ESV, for sin. There's a footnote in mine, and your translation may say, as a sin offering. That he sent Jesus not only to accomplish the law, the life that we could never live, but actually as a sin offering. Now, Paul, I think most scholars say, is probably referring very specifically to much of what's happening in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, where God sets up regulations for how sin is to be dealt with. In fact, if you've ever kind of wondered, what in the world does Leviticus have to do with my life as a Christian or with salvation, I'm going to tell you, a lot, okay? Because it sets the stage, actually, for what Paul says Jesus has done for us. Let me give you an example. In Leviticus chapter 16, 
We hear the regulations for the Day of Atonement. Jews actually still celebrate this as Yom Kippur. And the Day of Atonement was a very special day once a year where the people would gather together and the high priest would go and do a couple of really odd-seeming things to us. He would take some animals with him into the temple and into the special place where only he could go. And it would take a bull and he would sacrifice the bull and the sacrifice for the bull was actually for his own sin. So the priest had to deal with his own sin before he could deal even with the people. And he takes the biggest animal and he deals with his own sin and he sacrifices that bull because the bull is standing in the place, substitution for his own sin. See, God has said again, here's my standard. And the punishment for not meeting my standard is death. But God in his grace gave his people a way to symbolize his goodness and grace by saying, you take the bull and you sacrifice the bull and that bull dies for you. It takes the punishment for sin that you deserve. Then that priest would do another very odd thing. He'd find two goats and he'd bring one of those goats into the temple as well and he would do the same thing. He'd sacrifice the goat and that was to cover the sin of the people. So it represented the sin of the people and the sacrifice of the goat represented the atoning sacrifice needed to cover the sin of the people. So his sin has been dealt with. The people's sin has been dealt with in sacrifice, but he's got another goat left over. And this is the strange part is what he does is he gathers everybody around and he stands outside the temple and everybody's watching and he prays this prayer and he symbolically places the sins of the people on the head of this goat. This is where we get our term scapegoat from. And he says, this goat is going to take the sins of the people. And then what they do is they send the goat out. And he is taken outside the camp, outside the city, outside where the people are, sit off into the wilderness far, far away. And this whole ceremony is really meant to symbolize two really important things. That God has not only dealt with our sin in substituting a sacrifice for us, but he has taken it far away. He has taken it, the Bible says, as far away from us as east is from the west. He has sent it out so that it no longer marks us. He has removed our sin and he has sent it out from us. Paul's shorthand for that is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sent his son to be the sin offering. And this is the beauty of the New Testament, right? You open it up and it just explodes with all of these layers that Jesus is not only the bull and not only the goat that's sacrificed and not only the goat that takes the sin away, but he's also even the priest that offers it up. The beautiful images that are all put together in the Old Testament that are kind of placed like this paint-by-number picture that we open up the New Testament, we say, oh, it's Jesus. It's been Jesus all along. He's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb that's sacrificed to cover our sins. And he is offered up as a sin offering to cover our sin. And then we hear this great phrase, to condemn sin in the flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering to condemn sin in the flesh. I love that word actually in Greek, condemn. It, 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 it takes on the, the meaning not only of being proclaimed guilty, but the punishment as well. See, the, the law actually had the power to proclaim guilt. What Jesus does is, he, does is he actually takes the proclamation and the punishment altogether. 
And so Jesus condemned sin so that you and I are not condemned by sin. Get that? Jesus condemned sin so that you and I are not condemned by it. That, friends, is the gospel. That is the story of a God who loves his creature so much that he would actually give of himself as a sacrifice to cover their sin, to take it as far as the east is from the west away from them, to give himself to them in love and grace and mercy. If you've never heard those words before, I just told you what Christians believe. And to become a Christian actually is to transfer your trust from your own ability and checking off whatever boxes you think you could check off and to trust Jesus who has done it for you. To then believe that there is no condemnation for you, not because you have fulfilled all the right requirements, whether that's what you see as the Bible's requirements or some set of requirements that you've made up for yourself, but that Jesus has actually fulfilled those requirements for you, that he has lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve so that you might be made right with God. So then what do we do? Do we just kind of sit on our hands with that wonderful truth? No. The gospel actually frees us then to live life, and this is the beautiful way, right, is that we look at God's law, what he opens up for us in, in, in the Bible, and he says, here's this beautiful velvet hammer, Martin Luther called it, that's going to you know, hit you on the head and convict you of your sin. Here's this beautiful mirror to who you are that drives you to the cross and drives you to Jesus. But after we leave the cross, where do we go? We actually come back to God's word, to desire to be conformed to it. When I was in college, I worked uh, at a camp um, over, over one of the summers. Maybe some of you have worked at a camp like this or sent your kids there or been there as a camper. And like a lot of uh, summer camps, this, this camp had a ropes course. And there was this one really cool element in the ropes course called the Dangle Do. Uh, cool name too, right? And it was kind of like, uh, picture a big rope ladder, except the ladder is made of telephone poles and the ropes are cables on the sides of it, and so it kind of sways a little bit, and it's about 30 feet tall. And the goal is to climb this big, you know, kind of rope ladder up into the sky 30 feet high, which sounds simple at first until you realize that the rungs of this ladder increase the further you go up. So when you're, you know, 5, 10 feet off the ground, you can actually kind of climb it, kind of get on top of it. It's manageable. But once you get up to the top, the distance between the second to last you know, bar and the top one is actually taller than you can reach. And so what you have to do is stand on this wobbly tall ladder 30 feet up in the air on top of a telephone pole and jump to another telephone pole to grab it and to climb up. It's very frightening. At least it's very frightening until you finally realize what has been true the whole time is that you're wearing a harness connected to some very strong ropes, connected to a system of pulleys and held down on the ground by a very strong young man, and there's just no way that you're going to fall. And when you realize your security, when you realize the assurance that you have, what does it cause in you? It causes freedom. It enables you to jump. It enables you not to live out of insecurity, but to live freely out of the security that we have. 
Friends, that is what Jesus has done for us. He has given us full assurance. Now we get to go and live in the freedom that he's called us to. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who wrote these words to, um, to a group of Christians in Rome in the first century. And I don't know if Paul knew it at the time that a group of people in 2022 in New Braunfels, Texas would be reading this and finding such encouragement from us, but Lord, you knew it and we're thankful for that. Thank you for the beautiful proclamation that we do not stand under your judgment, but Lord, that as we stand with Christ, if we've been redeemed by him, if our faith is in him, we stand clean, righteous, loved, cherished, valued. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, teach our hearts to believe that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.